Hey everybody, welcome back to Rumor Flies. I'm Josh. I'm Ryan. It's Greg. F***ing Greg. <laughs> We're back with another episode for season two, and today's going to be probably our most, uh, Ryan, how would you describe this, like, I, I don't want to say, like, different, but it's it's something that I don't think we typically would have covered, and it's something that we just kind of stumbled along, and I'm, I'm really glad that we did, because it's... It's not something that you would expect from us, and some I don't know. This is terrible. It's technically like a sampler episode because our subject is actually a broad amount of things hashed into this one little book. You mean butt hashed? Yeah, references. Throwback. <laughs> it's a callback, kid. Just tell them what it is. <laughs> We're going to be covering the Anarchist Cookbook. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Anarchist Cookbook is what people used. I mean, it was written in the 70s. You know what, Ryan? You just explain the history. You do a better job than I will. All right. So the Anarchist Cookbook, more or less, is a book that has been around in the early 70s and also had a resurgence after republication under actually a different author in the early 2000s. And we'll, what this we'll is... We'll get into that. We'll yeah, get into that part of it. We're getting ahead. But what it is is essentially a set of recipes for... I guess more or less mayhem. You would say it would be anything from drugs to explosives to homemade weapons to doing all sorts of outdated things like uh, phone hacking or all sorts of just ways to disrupt the fucking system and stick it to the fucking man. To cause anarchy. Yeah. Uh, a little bit of background behind this is a man named William H. Powell, who was described as a hippie in many of the articles talking about him. Wasn't he in George Bush's like cabinet? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Something like that. He changed his name to to Colin, colon, Celine. Semi-colon. Celine Powell. So William Powell decided when he was working at a bookstore in the 70s to quit his job and start writing a book in protest of the Vietnam draft. Pretty much he was a draft dodger. And, I mean, there are more reasons to do it, more or less. But he was a young guy. I think he was about 19 at the time when he did this. And this was kind of his protest to actually being in the Vietnam War. He wanted to just kind of stick it to the man by doing as much mayhem or spreading that type of thing as possible. It was, I guess, his very elaborate form of rebellion. And this thing took off like a wildfire. So many different things have been connected to it. I mean, I remember when I was like 12 years old, I had a copy of it in PDF form uh, that I got off of like either Bearshare or Napster or one of those things. LimeWire? Frostwire? Yeah. Yeah, it was when I was a stupid kid. And I was a little pyromaniac. See, I, re- I remember coming over to your house and you're like, you need to read this. And it was the, the goddamn anarchist cookbook. And I'm like, what is this? You're like, just read it. Just read it. It's great. Just it wasn't it. just me. I had another friend and, you know, <laughs> partner in crime. No, I, I know. I know. I know. But I remember. Yeah. So this book pretty much outlined a lot of ways to be more of the anarchist mindset where you can cause mayhem. And and this is the anarchist, not like, I just don't want to follow the rules. It's I want to do everything to go against the laws that were written. Like I said, making drugs, uh, making explosives, homemade weapons, ways to hack phones, all that stuff. Just the most extremes that you could probably think of. This thing caught traction so early that in 1976, Croatian nationalists planted a bomb in a locker in Grand Central Station, killing one bomb specialist and injuring 30 bystanders after a failed disarming. And the attackers actually had a copy of the book on them. It wasn't mentioned that if this bomb that was made was used, was made from a recipe in the book. Yeah. But it shows that it had some influence on them in general. Uh, It's also associated with Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. I didn't know that. I didn't either. I mean, Timothy McVeigh used essentially a fertilizer bomb. It's extremely easy to make explosives using fertilizer. A lot of uh, it's nitrogen. That's the main thing in making stuff like C4 and such and like that. I'm not going to go into the details, but 
fertilizer bombs are easy to do and there's probably a recipe in there for that all the sorts of stuff like that the only issue is that we're covering this episode because pretty much this book has a lot of things wrong with it but it keeps going yeah i mean a lot of this book i mean it was revolutionary for the 70s but i mean here we are 40 years later and obviously some things aren't going to hold up but as we'll get into, some of the like science and the facts behind it are just they're straight wrong. I mean, it's still gone today with the internet resurgence of this book. Like the internet age brought it back yeah. into the mainstream so much so that in 2007, a teenager was arrested in the UK under conditions of the terrorism law for owning the book. He was acquitted in 2008 for being quote just a prankster that wanted to make some smoke bombs. <laughs> so, I mean, the word bomb's still in that. So I can see. I don't know. I can see the acquittal for that. It's like, oh, he was just trying to smoke some people out or a well, little bit. It's okay. I mean, I can I can definitely understand it. I mean, yeah, I mean, you got to take it with a grain of salt because of how inaccurate and, you know, stuff that we'll get into. But, I mean, if if somebody wants to do some damage, I mean, it even and not even with this book. I mean, just in general, they can do a lot of bad things if people put their mind to it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I totally understand why they looked into him for having this book, though. Yeah, this thing went very deep, though. This wasn't just like an underground book. This was published on bookshelves. So much so that uh, after a Freedom of Information request, it found, they found out that there was a lot of files from 1971 to 1999 documenting all the FBI's like open files on the Anarchist Cookbook and correspondence involving that. Greg and I actually went over a few of them, and it was fascinating. If Greg, you want to take over some things that you saw in there? I mean, it, there's a, a one particular guy that was important with this. Yeah, so... so Hitler? Hitler? Was yeah. it Hitler? Of no, course. it wasn't Hitler this time. This Damn is it. a classic, like where I had to, I had to really think through this because the whole history background thing. And naturally, I won't shut the hell up, so I'll keep this brief. Herbert Hoover, uh, many of y'all might know him from the uh, film the star Leonardo DiCaprio. There you go. Exactly the Dam. No, J. Edgar. <laughs> kidding. Not Herbert. So I know J. Edgar. So the idea is, there's the um, obviously the movie J. Edgar starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, you know, obviously that totally, everyone totally saw, true, right? <laughs> I, I, but the um, so. So J. Edgar was actually a very, very famous head of the FBI, um, oversaw a lot of the stuff during the time of the rise of the Black Panthers, um, the resurgence of what he considered communist movements, even though that was kind of on the decline over time, but kind of a very paranoid head and figure of the FBI that's associated with a lot of very negative things like Cointelpro and other things. But he received many, many letters from congressmen, congresswomen, random people from random households basically sending them newspaper clippings because of local articles about the anarchist cookbook. So you have this, we, it's in the show notes. Um, there was a FOIA request from this website and they got, I think it was like FOIA's 30, Freedom of Information yeah, Act. Freedom of Information Act. Um, they basically got like 170 of the like 200 pages of documents they requested, or 170, sorry, of the 200 pages they requested of just all this, all these letters and correspondence between people and Jay Edgar and it's all this stuff being like, have you seen this? Like one of them literally sent him a, a newspaper clipping of an article about this stuff, putting like danger exclamation point. Should we allow this question mark? And then like sign their name, like all these like things. And he responds to these people. It's hilarious how he responds. Yeah, too. he'll he'll and he'll always open. And, and Ryan actually drew my attention to this because he because he, he brought up J. Edgar Hoover. And I was like, oh, yeah, this guy was like obsessed with the Black Panther movie. And he goes, funny you mentioned that <laughs> because every single letter he responds with, he shoots. Horns like, oh, well, we can't control what's published in the, published in the mass media. 
However, let me draw your attention to all these other groups that subvert the American government. <laughs> always, like, um, uh, I forgot what the first one was. The second one is always the Black Panthers. So every letter he sends out, he makes sure to remind people that the Black Panthers are a problem. I think every time he's just sitting there in his office getting new letters about the anarchoscope, he's like, please tell me that the Black Panthers wrote this. Please tell me the Black Panthers wrote this. Yeah, it basically, it's really interesting, and, and just from a... Whether or not you're into history or not, it's really cool primary documents. We put a lot of our sources up, but I really, really recommend reading these. They're short, sweet, and really interesting. Well, not only that, there was a whole bunch of, the terminologies in there really reflects kind of today. Because one thing you see in there is that this book is very sympathetic to Castro's Cuba and to, quote, revolutionary thought. Now, the term revolutionary is more associated with, like, Bernie Sanders now, pretty much. But back then, revolutionary was essentially the word for terrorist. And today. also just, that was the Communist Manifesto. It was, it was developing the revolution, you know, uh, sending the revolution abroad. That was revolution and communism were so So it's connected. weird seeing the same type of scare, but with different terminologies. Just, like, with a different painted face on it. And that's as political as we're going to get with it. But this book... It has its place in history, at least in American history. And it's amazing because also there's some stuff we're going to get into about the author himself that might surprise you. Well, not only that, I just want to say, uh, one, I think it's safe to say that we are now on some sort of watch list for all the research that we did. Uh, after the breathalyzer <laughs> trick, I don't think that we're on <laughs> any less of a watch list than we already were that's before. A, that's a great point. But yeah, th- this book definitely has its its own place in history. And it's one of the earliest forms that I can think of, of like a really viral thing sweeping the nation. I mean, it, it's strange to us now looking back, you know, it, this year that something like this could be published and readily available on bookshelves for people to buy. I we hearing about middle school. I mean, we all we all heard about it, right? But once again, that was the Internet age. Can you think about back then in the 70s when it was just like it literally was friend of a friend of a friend of a friend told me about this book? Yeah. And then it was just kind of the recipe for just being a teenager in the 70s. Well, that's what's like, cool about these primary documents because apparently it became so circulated that people were writing news articles about it. That's what people were sending news clippings to Hoover. And, and then Hoover gets this. a bunch of spam mail afterwards. Right, so. that's true. He was like, he, like he, he, he actually did change his responsibility to a little person, by the way, but go ahead, sorry. Well, not only that, though, <laughs> like you eventually get to the point, though, to where it, I mean, it, it was such a big thing that they had updated versions on it and not just like one or two, like numerous updated versions to keep with the times when they did it. But to answer your question as to why we're doing an episode on this is because it has several fallacies in them. We're not going to cover a lot of them because there's some ethical grounds where we could talk about some things. Yeah. But really, there's no need to. Just know that there are a lot of problems with this book. Yeah. And we're going to go into some of the more blatant and interesting ones. Yeah. Um, Which is most of them. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) Some of them work. I mean, you saw the whole thing with the boxes, like the red box, the orange box, the silver box, all for like phone hacking or freaking is what they called it. Like there used to be a thing where you could whistle in a dial tone into a phone and get to a switchboard and get like a free call like that. Well, that was real stuff, but it's no longer relevant. No. <laughs> and, and that's, and that's a reoccurring theme you're going to see with a lot of these is that they are so outdated. Um, I tried to stick to like the earlier versions of the book because I wanted it to capture its true form. But I do understand that, you know, there are some things that later on that I pulled from, but for the most part though, I did try to stick with the original version that William Powell wrote. Right. So before we jump into this, uh, Josh, you're going to take the first topic, but I want everybody to have in their mind before I mention anything of what the first topic is, that this is a guy who is protesting the Vietnam War 
that made the recipe book for several things. Josh, what's the first thing we're going to be talking about? Napalm. Yep. <laughs> but actually, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I'm going to get into it in a minute. But napalm gets a bad rap with the Vietnam War. But I'll, I'll er, because I'm, it was so positive. No, 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 no. It gets it gets a bad rap because it should it should have been on long before the Vietnam War. That's from that. That's what exactly what I'm talking about. So sticky fire goo. So, <laughs> so talking about napalm. It's our first video supplement of the the new season. There's a new. Uh, <laughs> okay, sorry. sorry. I had to get that in there. So for those of you who don't know, napalm is a flammable liquid that typically is used in warfare. Uh, it's made with gasoline and some other adhesive agent. So anything that can stick together like a like a glue. The effects of napalm are absolutely atrocious. The problem with it is that it sticks to buildings, it sticks to people, it sticks to animals, <laughs> it sticks to skin. I mean, like everything. I know I'm mostly focusing on people, but that's honestly where most of the napalm is. Napalm used. on people, napalm on animals, napalm on buildings. It's better than you can do with napalm. So napalm was actually first invented long before the Anarchist Cookbook, a good 30 years before, uh, in a secret lab in 1942 at a university uh, research lab in, at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Which uh, surprised the shit out of me because I did not think that Harvard had anything to do with this. What year with this? 1942. Okay, so around the exact same time, you have several like top level of the world geniuses trying to make something that can split the power of an atom just to make it a giant explosion to kill 300, no, about 30,000 Japanese people in one little fell swoop. Meanwhile, you have another lab at Harvard just like, hey, we need you to make something that can burn and is also kind of sticky. Yeah, it sticks to stuff. Louis, Louis Pfizer, I think that's his name. If not, that's how I'm saying it. That's, that's who invented it. And yeah, but that's essentially how it went. I mean, you got Einstein working on the Manhattan Project, and then he's over here making napalm. So win-win for everybody, right? I have become death, the stickier of worlds. So Greg, uh, as a history major, I know you'd appreciate this. It was actually first used in World War II in the European theater. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, was it flamethrower fuel? So they originally did use flamethrowers, but the problem with flamethrowers is that they were great for all of about 10 seconds. And afterwards, they were pretty much rendered useless. They're super soakers that have a match at the end of them. That was a flamethrower, essentially. Well, not only that, there's, you know, there's only so much life that they have. And I mean, it's pretty terrible that you're running up to an enemy that's shooting at you and you have 10 seconds of ammo and then you have to run back and refi- you know, refuel and then you know, go back or whatever. Not only that, it's a lot easier to kill an enemy when you don't have to look them in the eyes as they're burning to death. Oh, that's great. Well, that's the psychology of it. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I'm with you. <laughs> so, but, you know, like Ryan Oops. mentioned, its claim to fame was in the Vietnam War, um, but the first... Penalty lo- shot, Greg. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> Tried to sneak it in there, boy. So, the first you know, really prolific use of napalm in 1945 was against Japanese cities before, before the bombings of, uh, was that the Tokyo fire fire bombings? Uh, It was there. Yeah. I was going to say it was in the Tokyo fire bombings before the fire bombings or was this, uh, I'm sorry. Are you the history major talking about this? Nope. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I I knew about the bat bombs. I knew about like, that's what I'm going to get into. Thanks for shitting all over it, Ryan. (laughs) I do this. It's my thing. Every other episode I hear you say, thanks for shitting all over this. (laughs) I use it in my daily That's language. That's the episode well. name. <laughs> <laughs> so right, Ryan, you you are correct. Napalm was first used uh, in the the European theater during World War II. Now, the the big thing about it though was Pfizer, the the guy who invented the napalm. He was the one who constructed these kamikaze bats. He was trying to implement a way to 
take the, the you know a, a certain breed of bats and strap napalm to the back of them and see if it was actually something they could use as far as uh, getting you know a tactical advantage you know in the war. Right. So I mean, napalm was used primarily in the Pacific theater originally in the European, but it was primarily used against Japanese cities in the Pacific. Right. But these bats seem to have been pretty promising because they were about to pull the trigger on it after, except their first test kind of went awry. You don't let living things do the tactical work for you. Uh, it turns out that one of their first tests, the Air Force base that they were trying it out at, so the, the bombs were kind of like this um, unfolding like bomb configuration where they drop it. Yeah, it was, parachute. Like a, yeah. it was like a cage for the bats. Yeah, they, they drop the cage and the parachute would go, so it would slow down, and the bats would release, and then they'd go and fly. And the thing is, they like to roost under dark places like roofs or thatch roofs like in Japanese cities. Right. However, at the Air Force test base, the, some of the bats decided to wander off and hide under a fuel tank, which set the entire Air Force base on fire. <laughs> so they decided that that project was not ready for action. So Project X-Ray was canceled, and they just went to the conventional napalm and regular bombs. Yeah, it, uh, it didn't go well, I guess you could say. So that's why they never actually used bats for, uh, or these bat bombs, you know, during World War II. But they still did use napalm. Napalm was used in... Uh, incendiary fires on Japanese cities around 1944, 1945. Right. So you had one lab inventing napalm and one lab inventing bats. And then you put them together. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly right, Ryan. Fun fact, World War II is the invention of bats. (laughs) What if these mice could f***ing fly? (laughs) So it was later used, like Ryan mentioned, in the Korean and Vietnam conflicts. Now, the the thing that I really wanted to, to point out was if you... Most people, when you look at the Vietnam War and you look at pictures of history of the Vietnam War, there's that famous photo of the little girl running naked uh, down the street. Well, her name is Ken Fuck. So you can't believe that, Ryan. So fuck you. Uh, wait, I can believe that one, though. You can believe that one, yeah. But Kim Fuck was the little girl, P H U C, was the one. Uh, she was burned with napalm all over her back. Oh, and it's she, really, we got to be respectful about this. Well, oh, I, no, man. no, I, I'm, I mean, I make the joke I, I about know, the last just, name, but um, I actually have the photo in the show notes as well. Um, and I, was, I wasn't completely joking about the video content. There actually is a video from the Anarchist Cookbook of using the napalm, if you want to check that out. But um, so now. Wrapping all of that up into the cookbook. So the cookbook calls for gasoline to be mixed with styrofoam. That's what it says will create napalm. Now, here's why that's bullshit. Typical napalm is made from gasoline, benzene, and polystyrene. Mm-hmm. Styrofoam. Oh. Is that what it is? Yeah. Mm, not completely. You're wrong. And I'll get to that in a minute. Styrofoam is a patent by, nope. I want to say, the Dow Corporation. Nope. Polystyrene. Not styrofoam, polystyrene. No, styrofoam is polystyrene. Right, but not what you're thinking of. Okay. I'll get to that in a minute, motherfucker. Uh-oh. <laughs> benzene. So benzene is another liquid, and polystyrene is plastic, like a yogurt container. Mm-hmm. It's not styrofoam. Okay. Suck it. <laughs> so napalm today. <laughs> napalm today is also known as napalm B because, as with these things, they evolve over time. And so napalm B is typically what they use today. Um, Just like preparation H. No, yeah, pretty much. We'll go with that. (laughs) The gasoline we have today um, contains uh, far less benzene as your typical napalm concoction. So if you were to create napalm today to begin with, there's no way it would be an actual true form of napalm. Uh, And if the video, like I mentioned before, it shows that it only burns for about two minutes or so and then it goes out. But typical napalm burns for at least 10 minutes. 
Oh, okay, so it's meant to be a slow burner like gasoline is supposed to right. be. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, just and, and the other thing is that napalm in general, napalm B, is very hard to ignite. It's not like you can just like spark a lighter right next to it and it just goes up in flames. Typically, they use a fuse, so it, it takes a little bit, you know, to get into it to set it off. Oh yeah, most of the time with anything like a type of explosive, you can actually like brick a campfire with C four, right? If you wanted to to stop the fire from spreading, because you need an extremely high temperature in order to set that off. A lot of things used in military grade like explosives need to have a like very high ignition point so they don't accidentally set it off. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, the video I showed, the guy just uses a lighter and it catches on fire when it's all hunky-dory. Right. But typical napalm, it doesn't do that. And the the last thing that I'm going to say about this, if you add gasoline to anything, it's going to fucking burn because that's what gasoline does. Yeah. I mean, we could just... We have like some padding that we just bought for this room. We could go ahead and just mix it with some gasoline. Well, that's exactly it. it, it, it we it, make some poor man's napalm, like it says in the book, huh? <laughs> well, that's you know the 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 book calls for you know this you know really specific concoction of styrofoam and gasoline, you know, to make whatever, whatever, whatever. But the the fact is, is that if you want to do something and add gasoline to it, it's going to light on fire. You can only get the styrofoam that's used in the original run of the Megazord for the Power Rangers from the original <laughs> series. That one works the best. That one totally burns better than all the other styrofoams. Well, this episode brought to you by Power Rangers. The uh, next movie, which we're totally not sponsored by, by the, for the record. <laughs> so, I mean, th- but that's my whole thing with this is like the napalm that you make with the cookbook is not even remotely cons- you know, close to what actual napalm is. So there's bull number one and like i said you add gasoline to anything it's going to burn and you can call it whatever you want but it's still going to burn so this is one of those things where like yeah in theory i guess if you want to technically call it napalm because it lasts for a little while longer i mean but even the the original napalm that they first used lasted longer than the napalm in the anarchist cookbook yeah so it's kind of like the smallest qualification for it possible it's like calling uh i don't know it's like calling a loaf of bread a sandwich. Yeah. Two slices of bread just put together, just a sandwich. Exactly. There you go. That, that, that's a perfect pat me on the back on that one. <laughs> but that's about it. Yeah, so that, that's my issue with this whole thing. Hey, guys. Post-production note here. Um, so I kind of goofed a little bit. And as much as it kills me to admit it, Ryan was actually right. Styrofoam is uh, a form of polystyrene. It actually is... Uh, a closed cell extruded polystyrene foam. Penalty shot. Yeah, I done I done fucked up here. So, uh, just to clarify, it, it is styrofoam itself, which they call for in the Anarchist Cookbook, is a little bit closer to the actual napalm concoction than we originally thought. But it still doesn't necessarily mean that what you create at home, as far as the recipe calls for, is what they used in the military. So I just need to distinguish that a little bit. Yeah. So there you go. So, Ryan, I, I think uh, I'm done with that. Oh, did you know about the toast sandwich? I, I, some UK scientists, like oh, well, don't, don't quote me on this one. Some other people can get the sources for us. But I remember there was a uh, research study to find, like, the most efficient college snack, and it ended up being a toast sandwich. Literally, <laughs> take a slice of bread, toast it, and then you put that in between two slices of untoasted bread. <laughs> and <laughs> the texture and flavor difference makes it a toast sandwich. They should call it the quad carb. But you see, the thing is, is that requires a toaster. They completely dis, like, did not account for the fact you have to buy a toaster for that. Well, college students, now you know how to make napalm if you want to toast some stuff. You know what you do? You get some ramen. <laughs> <laughs> get, 
Gasoline and toast. <laughs> Napalm. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> We're writing our own August This episode book. brought to you by Wonder Bread. <laughs> but no, if you want the best snack, you're going to go ahead and just get ramen noodles, which are less than a dollar a pop. You just crush that bitch up, and then you just like open up the packet and pour it in there and just eat it and quickly get a stroke. I mean, that's just how it works. So, fun story real quick. Before, you don't even cook it. Before we move on, that was the only way I ever knew ramen to exist, was crushed up and ate with the powder. I went into a very like sharp decline. I remember the first time it was at my friend, uh, I'm not going to say matter. his name. Yeah, I'm not going to say his name. His mom cooked this ramen noodles for the first time, and that's where I got enlightened to it. And she cooked it on a stovetop, you know, did all the instructions right. and everything. And I brought it. I was like, went to my, my home, and I was like, hey, mom, dad, can you make me some ramen noodles? And like, that's weird. Okay, sure. Why not? They cooked it in a microwave, and I was like, oh, I can totally do this by myself now. After that, we went to our friend Greg, not this Greg's house, and I found out that you can only put it in the microwave for a minute, and it's the perfect texture. Afterwards, I found out that you don't even have to put it in water. <laughs> and you can just crush that bitch up and just, like, pour the seasoning in. That's it. So it just came from, like, all effort to no effort whatsoever. No, I was, like, almost... I was almost eating the bag at one point. Well, I was almost 18 years old before I realized how ramen was supposed to be cooked. I always thought that it was supposed to be crushed up... And then you put the powder on top of it and you just ate it. I guess I grew up poor. Then I feel like we're talking about drugs. No, <laughs> I'm talking about ramen. <laughs> then I had that dark day where I like put ham in between two uncooked ramen noodle bricks and use that as the bread. Okay. Oh, I think that's a good ending point there. Ryan, what's the next topic? Oh, we're talking about the Anarchist cookbook, right? Okay. Hey, we did like the Rumor Flies cookbook just now, so. <laughs> sure. Speaking of talking about drugs, the next topic is going to be drugs. So, I know we talked about drugs in the last season, but we have two things in the Anarchist Cookbook that are great. He talks about a whole bunch of, like, homemade ways to make drugs or such, and, you know, the regular ones aren't as interesting to me of how to make those. They may be real, they may not be. Either way, he probably didn't do it in a lab setting, so you could probably hurt yourself if you tried to do it. The two that I'm going to talk about, where you're probably not going to hurt unless you really don't know how to use an oven, is... <laughs> um, We'll just go into two particular ones that he had listed in the original version of the 1971 Anarchist Cookbook. Okay. And, Josh, have you ever heard of a certain compound called bananadine? No. Bananadine? No. It sounds like chlorine and bananas. Bananadine? <laughs> I'm trying to go through all the pronunciations in case you may have heard it. I think you about wrapped that up. So, what he said is that you can get high off of bananas. Nice. And the simple recipe is... Nice. Here we go. I got the recipe right here. So I hope I don't get copyright infringement. So you get 15 pounds of bananas. Jesus Christ. All right. Here's the next important step. Peel and eat the fruit. <laughs> save all the peels. Dude. He didn't say what order. You eat 15 pounds of bananas? Yes. Yes. Jesus Christ. 15 pounds of bananas. You peel the fruit and eat all the bananas. You don't want to be wasting. Eat every single one of them bananas. <laughs> Afterwards... You scrape the insides of the peel. So you know how you still have that like white little section yeah. inside of the man afterwards? You scrape that off. You mean the part I always throw away because I think it's disgusting? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you put it in a pot, okay. add some water, and then you boil it till it gets into this mushy, semi-solid consistency. After that, you take that and spread it in a baking pan. And after that, you put it in the oven and you leave it. It doesn't give it a, a temperature. You don't put it at a certain temperature. They just tell you to put it in the oven. <laughs> I don't know if you're going cold, you put it on preheat, or you just put it, like, all the way up. It doesn't even say to turn the oven on. Yeah, either way. (laughs) 
Either way, you just stick it in the oven and magic happens. <laughs> However long it requires, you leave it in there till your revolutionary spirit will dry the banana peel. You leave it in there until the banana turns into a black residue. Afterwards, you smoke the residue. So pretty much just saying, turn that shit into charcoal, and then you smoke it. I really feel like I could stop right here and just have any listener kind of just, out of all the things we've talked about before, with polyaromatic hydrocarbons, partially combusted things, you know, gives you lung cancer and all that stuff. This is, you're turning that shit into charcoal. There is nothing after that. That's like just like taking your best weed that you have. You're going to make pot brownies. Let's just go ahead and go with that. You take the weed and you make the pot brownie recipe. You put it in the oven and then you just turn it into fucking black charcoal mush. Yeah, try eating that afterwards and see if it gets you high. It won't. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but just for the sake of science, uh, let's see who did the research. It was New York University found that there are no psych- psychoactive chemicals in bananas or their peels. So just let me stop you there real quick. Mm-hmm. This is supposed to make you feel like you smoke three or four cigarettes, correct? Yes, if that's the that's the supposed effect of it. It's, Question. it's supposed to be after smoking three or four cigarettes. I don't know if you honeycomb it or not. <laughs> Shut up. Greg, <laughs> have a have a I have a fact checker for you. Oh Please look up the price of one pound of bananas. <laughs> okay? Because let's do some simple math here, fellas. Fact checker Greg. Fifteen oh. pounds of bananas, okay? I figured they range about sixty cents a pound, let's just say. So quick math shows that that's around what, like ten bucks, nine so, bucks? I was gonna say, so I'm seeing one guy saying he pays eighty nine cents a pound. So uh, yeah. So we'll say a dollar with taxes and everything. Just for for to, to make it one kilo is thirteen to fourteen US dollars. Yeah, I don't we're in America, I don't know what kilo and is. One right kilo now. is about two pounds. So it's how much? Like like three dollars? God damn it, Greg! You're taking so long. So it's a common. It depends. On, it depends on where you are. But assuming you're in the U.S., it's going to be somewhere between like eight and twenty bucks. It just it just kind of depends. It's it's it So let's just say that for ten. So fifteen pounds of bananas cost ten bucks. Let's just say sure, that, okay? Yeah, that, that's a fair assessment. So for ten bucks, you can buy fifteen pounds of bananas, have to eat the bananas, and then do all that work to pay for electricity, okay? To feel like you smoke three or four cigarettes. Or, alternatively, you could just buy a pack of cigarettes and smoke three or four cigarettes, which is significantly cheaper, saves time and electricity. You could probably do yourself a favor, buy a glass pipe from a convenience store, which we can totally do that in Louisiana. I don't know if you can do it elsewhere. I don't know. Yeah, you can buy shoelaces. That's for tying one Ryan, off, by the way. Ryan, water pipe. Oh, sorry. Water. I, I said pipe. I didn't say bong. Oh, I, I just got kicked out the raw shop. Also, you can... And we also don't condone smoking. (laughs) In most gas stations down in New Orleans, you can buy all the ingredients to either shoot heroin, aside from the needle, you can buy the required ingredients to smoke crack, and also uh, there's pipes there. Just That's a thing, and they have all sorts of different regulations to get by it. There's brass knuckles, too. Take it as you will. That's how it works. Nice. So, anyway. Real nice. (laughs) So, off of that, yes, you could just buy three cigarettes, get a pipe, just load all three or four of the cigarettes into the pipe, just pack and real nice and just smoke it. I mean, uh, to me, that would be much easier, safer. I don't know about safer, but it would be much easier than doing all of this just to feel like you've, you've smoked three or four cigarettes. Thank us later, Philip Morris. Yeah, there you go, buddy. So, <laughs> so I guess that ends the banana got, portion man. of it, but we have another drug on tap here. Josh. Oh, come, it, wait. Has drugs on tap. It comes on tap? Yeah. <laughs> we have a little drug dispensing machine on the new table that we have, so... 
It doesn't even have it labeled. You just take it. So. <laughs> it is a great time to launch our Patreon account. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All the caveats we had last season. Now we're just like, we're doing every drug possible <laughs> while recording this. <laughs> Fuck it. Burn it to the ground. <laughs> so the next one is, Josh, did you know you get high on peanuts? Greg, did you know you get high on peanuts? No. Good. <laughs> Well, let me enlighten you. There's another recipe to get high on peanuts, and there's no banana dean or anything. We'll just call it uh, mm, peanut acidin. Does it call for 15 pounds of peanuts? No, it calls for one pound of peanuts. Ah. So this, now we're talking fiscally responsible. This recipe calls for one pound of peanuts unroasted. Okay. Important. Keys. So you need to peel, save the skins, but not the shells, and eat all the peanuts. Jesus Christ. It says in the recipe. <laughs> I'm pretty sure these highs are just being from, like, near food poisoning or something like that. Just from, like, eating an entire, like, rack of brownies, weed or not in them, you will still probably feel something after eating an entire pan of them. So this is much easier. You save the skins. So when you peel peanuts, you uh, have the shells. Then you have those little red skins around them, right? Right. That wasn't a racial slur. That was just they have like a little red skin around the peanuts. I don't think anybody thought that was a racial slur. I'm covering <laughs> all my bases right here, all right? You're more defensive than I am. <laughs> Not the Washington ones. We're talking about like the oh, peanut Jesus. ones. <laughs> Jesus. You know what my dad always says? <laughs> a very simple rule. You're digging that hole sometimes is better to throw away the shovel. <laughs> now I'm using my hands now. <laughs> so you take those skins and just like you take them off. I mean, those are pretty bitter. I always take them off anyway. Yeah, I don't like but the way they taste. You're supposed to save them in this case. Once you save them, you, it says, roll them up into a cigarette and smoke them. Just smoke a cigarette. Exactly. Jesus. It doesn't even say what the effect is in this part. And literally this guy says, I'm not sure if this works, but my friend says to try this. <laughs> It sounds like you just went, William Powell just went through this for like, hey, I really need some content for this book. Can you tell me how you get high? I was like, I got to hit that minimum page or, or I'm not going to get the, the payout I want. <laughs> where where was Jinkum back then? Because that would have absolutely made it. And this is before keyboard cleaner. So uh, apparently they were just really trying to smoke anything possible. So uh, we just got to have one. Got to have one episode. It's so good coffee. And... <laughs> I tried to go in the origins of this. I'm pretty sure this origin was William H. Powell's friend. That's it. Like, <laughs> nobody even bothered to do research to see if there's anything Sauce. psychoactive in peanuts. There is nothing. So we're going to go ahead and say, unless we really want to do a supplemental video of us smoking no. peanut skins. No, we are not doing that. No. This is one of those runs like, oh, guys, yeah, I'll, I'll take this bullet for you. And you're like, no, no one wants to do this. Why didn't you volunteer for Jankum, Ryan? You know what? <laughs> Why didn't you volunteer for the Blue Angel, Josh? We're <laughs> calling people out, huh? <laughs> Because he likes his shorts. They're really stylish. You had the recipe, Josh. <laughs> I've been thinking about the fire fart One recipe. One stop to Sonic and we would have had that. I've been thinking about the fire fart recipe the entire time with this Anarchist. We have a rallies closer and we could have done it. <sighs> so that's done with me. Josh, what you got? Is it something about jackpotting an ATM machine? You can go fuck yourself. Why? It's an ATM. It's not an automated teller machine machine. It's an ATM. Well, no, it's the, you know what I'm no. talking about. The thing where I put no. my PIN number no, in. you can go fuck yourself. I hate you so much. <laughs> Personal identification number number. Dick. All right. I shouldn't have thought about that. I work for the Department of Redundancy Department. <laughs> <sighs> okay. So jackpotting an ATM. This one's really easy to dispel. This won't, this won't take a whole lot of time. But first off, when you hear at least... 
when Ryan and I were talking about this, we were talking about jackpotting an ATM. You would think that they give you a step-by-step basis in order how to jackpot an ATM. Yeah, that's not that's not how it happened. Uh, basically, what it actually tells you is a story of how a guy was able to steal money from an ATM. But even that is still kind of hazy. It's not really clear how he did it. They just give you, I think, what they assume was the, the way that he went about so it. So my brother got the new Nintendo 64, the Nintendo 128. That's and exactly his friend it. said. And then he 360 no-scoped. So, <laughs> Seriously, though, my uncle works for Nintendo. <laughs> my buddy's uncle works for Nintendo. So the story goes that the guy inserted a bank card into an ATM and then attached a microcomputer to it. And... With the microcomputer, he was able to interfere with the signal where the ATM would talk to the bank about getting money, and it would just basically trick it into saying, give this guy all the money that you have. He has a sufficient balance, and you know he'll take all of it, and it won't be a problem. Real quick, micro. In the 1970s, nothing was micro. And that was my next point. Uh, but no, you're completely right. There was nothing Rude. small about computers back then. A microcomputer would be an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi or something like that. Still rude. I don't think they had that. Or a cell phone. It's a laptop in my back pocket. Rude. I'm not going to do rap God. So, <laughs> yeah, what he basically did was he altered the, the using the microcomputer to alter the signal so that we'd be able to get all the money. Um, but that's it. That's all the story says. End of story. Rumor flawed. Whatever. Whatever you want to say. Um, it, at the end of the section, it leaves an open-ended question like if such a thing is, you know, you're able to do such a thing or anything like that. Um, but the answer is yes, actually. You can do something similar to that, but it's not so basic like you would think. I've seen tons of different videos that are terrifying about like the ATM skimmers and shit like that. But that I can't see how that was happening in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, it, this, technology has far surpassed everything that was back then. I mean, for instance, back then, it was dial-up. Everything was dial-up. So when the ATM would talk to the bank, it had to go through a landline, a dial-up. They don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. I mean, and well, you go to Jazz Fest here and they have the ATMs just like in the middle of Jazz Fest that just work. Yeah, that, that's exactly, <laughs> it's like magic. Yeah. There's, there's no wires or anything that connect them besides a power source. So that's part of, part of the thing today is if you want to steal money from an ATM, it's a really elaborate thing. And I'll put it to you this way. If you were that far advanced to where you can steal money from an ATM, you could probably steal money from a lot of other things in the process. There is a whole documentary that actually has a small segment on breaking into an ATM called Breaking Bad that shows how hard it is to actually do that. I mean, yeah. I mean, just, I ain't no skank. <laughs> it's pretty much, I, mean, I won't say it's impossible to do, but it's extremely difficult. And if you're so hell-bent on using your talents to do that, then... I mean, you could get a job with the government pretty easily. That's all I'm going to say. You have better luck brute forcing it, which is still extremely difficult to do in the first place. Well, the the story goes that the guy originally in, in the Anarchist Cookbook, the story that he tells, the guy stole like $120,000 over the weekend. Yeah. That's a lot of beer money. His name was 4chan. He was the 4chan. Who is this 4chan? <laughs> I got a dog to keep him away. Well, I mean, first <laughs> off, Close um, the blinds. I, I have personal experience working at financial institutions, and there's not as much money in an ATM as you would think. So if this guy actually did steal $120,000, he about damn near had to hit every single ATM in the city. Okay, that's actually a good point. And $120,000 in 1970s money, too. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Even more than an ATM would be holding that. Or now. Most banks have a $10,000 requirement. I mean, $10,000. 
maximum? It's not even that much, to be so honest with you. 400 cash. Not only that, well, Josh, you might be able to answer this. Sorry, 2,000 deposit, 400 withdrawal. What is the insurance policy for a bank going uh, under for anybody's account? I think it's like 250,000, something like oh, that. Oh, it's, it's FDIC insurance. Yeah, it's it's something like that. It's it's insane. Why would you think they would have half that amount of money in an ATM? Yeah, no. The, your a- ATMs, and I'll honestly probably have, I would say closer to $5,000 and 10000 Now, if it's a Friday, I mean... You probably have better luck of finding more because they won't be there for a couple of days. But even then, most banks are open on Saturday, so that really doesn't even count. Um, so yeah, if you were to, but honestly, like I said, if you were to actually do this, it would require a lot of thought, a lot of skill, a lot of perfection, and the fact that you won't get caught is pretty damn near impossible because they have cameras on everything. They can get fingerprints. I mean, there's so many. They have so many fail safes with ATMs nowadays for this exact reason that it, it's it's like you know cracking Fort Knox almost, you know? Right. So, I mean, that that's pretty much it. There's nothing really else I have to add to it, but... I mean, and the way skimmers work now today is there's a small little uh, slide that you put over where you would put the card in. There's, there's several different ways to do the skimmers now, and some of them are, like, in the actual part where you deposit the card, and those are more complicated, but for the most part, you can look on uh, public PSA, I guess. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> so, PSA... There I was are sometimes if that was accidental or not. It was half and half. I will admit that fully. <laughs> I think that makes it worse. So on an ATM, you'll see like the part where you put your card in, and usually it's like like a translucent type of plastic. Right. There are a lot of people that within seconds can go and put this like thing on top of it, and also put a little tiny pinhole camera in front of the keypad. I appreciate to you see catching that. The card swiping, and then also see you putting in your pin number. <laughs> I'm going to keep going. I'm just going to keep going. I'm a madman. I can dance all day. No, but that's the thing is you you honestly need somebody's pin nowadays in order to get into their account. Right. So it's not just getting the card. Right. It wasn't as simple. Back then, it was as easy as that. But nowadays, it's not. And even, you know, with technology today, it's 2016, you know, whatever you want to say, you can take a picture of your goddamn check and put it in, you know, to your account. Yeah. So technology is so far advanced, you know, the 40 years or so, let's just say, since then, and, and yet know, we still can't figure out f***ing printers. <laughs> or fax machines. Um, or VCRs and their damn clocks. <laughs> That's a good point, Greg. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't really know what else to say. You know, it's the story itself, you know, it was just a story. It wasn't a how-to. It wasn't a play-by-play or anything like that. You could still have all of the equipment that this guy used and have no idea what to do. So... First off, the story talking about jackpot and ATM, I'm sh- maybe the guy got away with it, but I seriously doubt that he was able to do much more than that. And then he immediately told somebody to get published in a book. That's a great thing to do. That's exactly it. So I don't even you can't even verify how true the story is to begin with. So that's about it, Josh. Yep. So the next thing we're going to do is a partial, and I, I'm kind of glad that we did this. Like I said, this is almost like a grab bag episode because the Anarchist Cookbook has such a wide variety of just mischief in order to be uh, incorporated in this book. And the last thing we're going to talk about is hypnotism. And this is not actually in the original form of the Anarchist Cookbook. This is in one of the, I think, 1999 to 2002 versions of it written by the Jolly Roger, who is the second person to have adapted the book, more or less. It leaves a lot in, but also changes a lot and adds a lot of things. And hypnotism is one of them. And the Jolly Roger, who, we, as far as I know, I've looked it up, we don't know who he is. No, I couldn't find anything either. But he's a dickbag. But so, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it more. So the Jolly Roger, 
included a part on hypnotism where it talks about how to not only hypnotize yourself, but others into doing certain things. And honestly, to give him a little bit of credit, he's a little bit on the mark, but not quite. He's kind of the way of how to be a snake oil salesman or the current type of uh, hypnotist fraud, like stage hypnotism acts. Everybody's seen this, where like they get a whole group of people up to come up and be hypnotized, and then the hypnotist makes them do all sorts of crazy things, right? Everybody's seen that, huh? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Well, that is more or less bullshit. It's a very gray area, but I'll get a little bit into it. So hypnotism on the face of it is pretty much being able to put yourself into a trance or being able to focus on one certain thing. And I believe what he said in the book is that you get a candle and you focus at it until it's all you're thinking about, until you aren't hearing any words in your head or anything like that. And you keep putting yourself deeper and deeper and deeper into that to the point where you, the goal is to not think. And this sounds a lot like meditation because it is. It's about not being able to think and clearing your head and then being able to apply new things to it as you go. So hypnotism and meditation are almost indecipherable by a lot of terms. I might catch some stuff from this from a few new agey people, but for the most part, that is what hypnotism and meditation is. One of them is supposedly, hypnotism I guess is more seen to be applied to you by somebody else, but still needs your assistance, as opposed to meditation is you do it yourself. Well, the, the, the issue you get into as well is that if you're going to hypnotize someone, the person who is going to be hypnotized needs to be willing, you know, they need to be w willing to accept that. Exactly. So first off, if they're not, if they're just sitting there going, you're not going to hypnotize me, I'm like I'm not going to let it happen, then it won't happen. So let's go into this. Uh, power suggestion. This is essentially what hypnotism is. It is the power of suggestion as to where you get yourself into the state where you can be very, like, you can be very open to suggestion, but you yourself have to be willing to take that suggestion and you can't be tricked into it. You are still conscious. You are not an unconscious person when you're doing this. Right. And people have been able to go through amazing. There are, there are documented surgeries where people have gone through, what do you want to call it? Hypnotism or guided meditation. There are actual filmed cases of this. There's a guy who's done several runs and climbs in sub-zero settings using meditation and not died. He's gone for about almost an hour in ice water without getting hypothermia because of meditation. And it's something that we really do not understand. And this could have gone in one of our brain episodes, but well, let's, was, just, let's just hit it now. Well, I was going to say, we talked about the nocebo and the placebo. Yes. I mean, that ultimately is the power of suggestion. Greg is like vibrating on just so many different frequencies right now, ready to talk about things. And I guess we'll let you get into it because I, I, I will let you get it, Greg. But this guy is talking about the idea of getting other people to do things that you want using the power of suggestion. So what he's saying is you have to, you can't say, I, his example was that you can't tell somebody to get into meditative state and then all of a sudden, f*** a pillow. Yeah. That's like that's, verbatim. That's his example. I saw that. It, what you have to do is instead you have to tell them something to the extent of like, oh, you're about to take a shower in your room. Like you paint this vivid picture for them of something that they're comfortable with. You have to know the conditions of their room and their house and their bathroom and really just like make that setting for them and then make them take off their clothes. And then it's like, oh, well, you know, this person here wants to get, you know, frisky with you. So you should totally just proceed with it and just give them a pillow. Still doesn't work that way. The real idea behind this power suggestion with these fraud hypnotists, which is really, these are the people in the crosshairs for this type of podcast, is they work off of something called kind of crowd mind or right. hive mind, where 
think about it right now. They will select people that are very enthusiastic about going up there. Also, we're not going to even include the fact that they probably have plants in the crowd because most of the time they do. There are plants for a lot of different things. Can I make one little side comment? Go ahead right now. Um, At my undergraduate, um, so my, my school is very famous for we have a hypnotist who comes. He's been coming since the 70s. And it's been long time going. It's, it, it's, it's a pretty large thing. I'm just not going to go specific about it. If you know me, then you'll know the school. But anyway, he's um, been going there for decades, about 40 years now. And he's, I actually helped bring him to our school one year. And he talked a lot about it. And he's very upfront about it. And the fact of the matter is he goes, you know, they're definitely your people. It, it's interesting because if you watch the show, within the first 20 minutes, you have people walk off the stage because they realize they're not receptive. He picks people, the guys who are, you know, the guys and women who are super enthusiastic to be on stage, as you're saying, because it's about, oh, I, I, you know, he, you need people who are open to it. And it's where this whole power of suggestion comes into play, because suggestion so, is so built upon the idea of, are they even receptive to it? Because if you aren't receptive to it, you can't make someone, you can't go, Ryan, you are now gonna go kill someone, right? It, it's just, it's just, it's not in your moral framework, it's just not going to work. There's a very sure. It's a very <laughs> low percentage chance that Ryan will go and kill someone. We're not saying he will or won't, unless there's some sort of drug that will convince you to like kill yourself by power of suggestion. It's not going to happen. Exactly. And so the the the, the, the long and short of it is that that you, the power of suggestion is very built upon the idea of the person has to be open to it. And so this this uh, this hypnotist is very very frank with us about it. And his name was Frank. No, he's just very frank with us about it. And yeah, anyway, you can continue. But the whole point is that, that this power of suggestion is a very real thing. And a lot of these people just build upon that idea. And the entire thing is predicated on if they aren't open, it will not work. Well, yes, I, 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 I got to <laughs> jump in here. It's like Go the ahead. bullshit show from John Edwards. The media. That's cold reading. That's a whole different situation. But, <laughs> no, but yeah. no, 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 no. Don't make me do that. Please. Please don't no, no, make no. me. But my point being is make that. Ryan, hashtag make Ryan rich. But my whole point is like that preys on the power of suggestion because people go there wanting to hear answers from him. And so they shape the narrative so that way it will benefit them the most. You know, it's fucking preying on desperate people and it's. I'm keeping it right there. It's for another day. I'm going to do it. <laughs> Going to the second level of this power of suggestion. First, like Greg said, you need some people that are receptive. And that's easy to scream by seeing if somebody's excited unless you have a plant or unless you have somebody that's intentionally trying to ruin the act. Right. I say act because they are not much different from magicians in this sort of way. Most of the time, meditation and hypnotism are supposed to be therapeutic. This is not therapeutic at all whatsoever. So once you get somebody up there, they're already very receptive and happy about it. You start telling them weird things like telling them, oh, you're going to dance like you dance when nobody's looking. Or, oh, you're going to start making your most raunchy sex sounds, stuff like that. So the psychology behind that is kind of weird around here because it's mainly cultural. It's an idea of either standing out or mixing in in a tight situation. There have been several psychological studies, and this is kind of really stereotyping, but for the most part, it's said that mostly Eastern cultures are about kind of the greater whole, like fitting in, mm -hmm. where the West is more individualism and standing out on your own. However, when you're in an uncomfortable situation and you don't want to be singled out for something, especially if you have a whole crowd watching you, you're most likely going to go along with a lot of things that people well, suggest. It's peer pressure. I was, I was just going to say. It's peer <laughs> pressure. In general, there was those experiments with, like, you know, the people that were shocking a test subject, even though it weren't be shocking, 
they weren't being shocked. The researchers were telling them to do it, and they were doing it because they didn't want to be the ones to stand out or go against the orders. Didn't we cover that? No, we did not cover that experiment yet. We might, but we're going to have to find a good reason for it. Anyway, so it's that second level where it's telling people, you should do this. You're already putting them in that trap where it's like, you have to work this in. You have to do this now because everybody's watching you. You don't want to look stupid among everybody else that's probably dancing with you. And the deal is, it's working with everybody else that's on stage. Usually they get a big group of people so that it is peer pressure. I mean, there is the strange situation where it's all a bunch of people that just say, F*** that, we're not doing it. Right. But that ha- I haven't seen any videos of that. So hypnotism is not exactly the way that they put in the Anarchist Cookbook is more of a stage show. He's giving you a way to become a professional entertainment hypnotist, which I'm sure is actually frowned on by a lot of the community of hypnotists or psychotherapy type of people because it can be useful. But I don't know. I think like it's a gray area. Technically, yes, he's giving you a guide to some sort of meditation, but also he's giving you a guide to being a good con man. Well, that's like the classic, you know, when you think of hypnotism, you think of the guy with the pocket watch waving in front of your face. It's the same with the candle. It's something to focus on. That's exactly it. That's what I was saying. Like you have this image of the guy with the pocket watch, you know, you're getting very sleepy. You're getting very sleepy. And it's, I, I hate things like that because all it does is like you said, it just, it preys on people who are willing subjects. And to me. It's just a power suggestion. It doesn't accomplish anything. Well, that's the thing. There can be a good application for it, too. In a lot of the things like the human plank or like sleight of hand, pretty much, where or common physiology where just the situation makes it look like it's something else other than the very simple answer to it. And I, I really feel like we should just kind of nearly stop there because I'm going over with it. But essentially, <laughs> the Jolly Roger added this little bit of how to be a con man. So maybe that adds to the spirit of the anarchist cookbook. But really... I guess wrapping this up, there is no spirit to the anarchist cookbook anymore. No, not even that. It's just like you can sit there and it's funny because the fact that he's people are willing to learn, like learn hypnotism is in itself him writing it is the power of suggestion. Yes. So it's it works on so many levels. It's it's a crazy phenomenon. But yes, that's pretty much it. It'll probably work on people just like binaural beats, which we should cover. Um, Wait. By what? Binaural beats. Oh. One day. One day. I don't know what that is. Binaural Dre beats. Got it. That's exactly what I thought of, like, beats by Dre? By beats by Dre. Okay. So, I guess, uh, Josh, you have anything else to put on that? Because we got a little bit of a twist to this. No, I I mean, I think that about wraps up all of that. I think think we did a good job of covering different aspects of the Anarchist Cookbook and showing that this is what it was like at the time it was published. This is the way people took it. But in reality, this is exactly how it is. Yes. So this seems like an odd episode because honestly, we were kind of on the fence about this one just because we were kind of stretching for some content at points. But then we looked up the origins and history of it and we gave you the beginning of the Anarchist Cookbook. But we're going to catch you up to the modern day. And this is what makes it so fascinating to me. All right. Real talk. This is fucking crazy. Yeah. So (laughs) William H. Powell, the writer of the Anarchist Cookbook, is actually... Uh, I don't want to say a man after my own heart because, well, he came first. But so William H. Powell had a kind of a change of heart right after he wrote the Anarchist Cookbook. He actually has no control over the copyright of the book since it has changed hands numerous times over the years. And the last publication was in 2012, and it's heavily based off of the revised version of 2002 from the Jolly Roger. So Which, again, he wrote the original book back in 71. Yeah, it's so, 30 years. So 30 years later. <laughs> so 
Powell has actually since regretted creating the book, calling it a form of dumb teenage rebellion. And for the last 40 years, he has been a teacher and a school leader in Africa and Asia, and he has co-authored a book called Becoming an Emotionally Intelligent Teacher, the book aimed towards educators and pretty much the mindset of how to further somebody's educational development. I think that is just plain amazing because, uh, once again, we've referenced it a few times, but I did a episode with Greg of his podcast, Projecting, a long time ago before we even started the podcast, and it was very heavily geared towards like critical thinking and education of how education can change culture, can change an entire society. And I really can't emphasize, when we were prepping this episode, Ryan really did step down. He was like, this is this is why I do this podcast. Yeah. He was very, you were clearly very inspired when you started reading about him. Yeah, this guy, he, he pretty much, like I said, the past 40 years. So this guy, shortly after the book, was like, that was dumb, except one of my mistakes ended up being published worldwide, influencing everything from terrorists to stupid teenagers that ended up blowing their fingers off. Stuff like that. And that's a lot of weight to like carry around with you. But at the same rate, he seemed to have shaken it off. Honestly, he wants the book taken off the shelves quickly and silently. I can't blame him, and there's honestly nothing he can do about it. But he has written articles for several newspapers saying, yeah, can we please stop this? This is not what I intended. This is not what I want. This was me in a moment of passion. I was a little bit of an above-average thinker at the time, using it for the wrong purposes. But at the same rate, now I really want people to really fight the system by changing it through knowledge and education and making sure that everybody else knows the proper things in order to change something. Well, yeah. We say that a lot on the show, right? Where it's like, this is why we do this. I'm like, this is actually the first time I'm really be like, this is why we do this. This is if we wrote, (laughs) this is if we wrote, (laughs) this is if we preambled, this podcast was another one where we just looked at every article we read on Facebook from all of our friends and just like reported them. It's just as if we were like CNN or MSNBC or anybody running with a Jenkum article, pretty much. Well, yeah. <laughs> and then we make this one apologizing for everything we had talked about previously. Well, you can see like he clearly has, he has a passion for leading, inspiring and teaching. And it's just unfortunate that in a moment of weakness, like you said, he decided to use that as a way to rebel and everything like that. I mean, but, and I'm not trying to defend the guy, but how many times when we were 16, 17, 18, where we did things to spite our parents, to spite other people? If you were told you could write a book that would influence how people acted, would you not act at all? Nobody ever wrote to Jagger Hoover <laughs> about my shenanigans. Right. So. And it's just unfortunate that he gets caught up in all of this, but you clearly see a change that developed in him over time. He realized that he wanted to be a better person and he wanted to change the world in his own right. So it's really respectable about that. And, you know... No matter what happens in life, there's always going to be people who are looking for the easy way out or for looking to, you know, cause anarchy or havoc or whatever like that. There's just there's just some men who want to watch the world burn. Yeah, but this guy, he, he even has an educational foundation now. And it's just there's the whole thing of like really, you know, you talk about when you're writing something, it's like character development. This is what real people go through. Everybody has their own story, and this guy only, unfortunately, has the most, like, blazing part of his story told to most people. And I think it's a great injustice because what he's doing now is far greater than anything he ever did with the Anarchist Cookbook. I agree. And I know we made a lot of fun of a lot of things in this episode, but really I have nothing but respect for this guy now. Regardless of what he may have led to beforehand, that's not—that's that that's behind him. That's a different person almost. Yeah, I'm I mean. 
I, I would slap the shit out of myself from even like five years ago, you know? I mean, it's just one of those things. It's, uh, I wish I would be able to do something that monumental eventually. And like I said, this guy went to like Asia, Africa, Saudi Arabia, everywhere else that pretty much was lacking in some forms of education and trying to fix that so that eventually those that generation could make a difference in the future because every society has problems, but at the same time, you set up the kids from that society to either become the next, like, extreme terrible people or become the people that actually change for the better and do it through either resistance, which is a problem, the medium part, or when they're the majority and it's easy. And he's doing it through the, I would say, the best way possible. Yeah, he's, he's using the most respectable and best medium that he can to make an impact. And uh, that's, I mean, that's all you can ask for someone, especially someone who was so against all of this and now is just completely turned heel. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he'd still have issues with the draft, but I doubt he'd rewrite the anarchist cookbook and protest to it this time. I don't think he would do it the same way as he used to. Yeah, and I, I totally I respect him for that. I agree. I'm with you 100%. So um, are we going to wrap that up right now? Or you got some house cleaning? or? Yeah, yeah. So the one of the last things we're going to get to is we got a really awesome short novel from Alex, one of our listeners. It was really, really cool because he, he kind of gushed over us and said some really nice things, and we always appreciate hearing about how great we are. Uh, some really good critiques and I, suggestions. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, he did. But one of the things that he decided to really focus on, and he really let us know about it, which we love. We love you know hearing from you guys and interacting with all of you. So, But one of the things he decided to write about was Lance Armstrong. This was something that I wasn't expecting to catch shit about. No, because... And not in this way. <laughs> no, because when we did the sports episode, we... Didn't want to be too hard on the guy because there was some good that came from, you know, the Live Strong movement and things like that. Yeah. Well, apparently that we weren't harsh enough on this guy in Alex's eyes, (laughs) which I'm totally cool with. He was ripping on him leaving Sheryl Crow so much. No, no, actually, that wasn't about. Well, (laughs) well, no, he did actually mention about leaving his wife. (laughs) Oh, so. One of the things that was really interesting, and I won't read the whole email because it's 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 pretty lengthy, but the gist of it was is he basically says that Lance Armstrong is a piece of shit individual. He's a terrible human being. He left his wife. He cheated. And this whole cancer, uh, money for cancer thing that he did, it was actually just cancer awareness. Yeah, I didn't know about that part. Or I didn't read that part critically. That yes. was my bad. Yeah, so, and he brings up a great point how the bracelets were made in sweatshops. And there's literally nothing good about Livestrong because he still pockets the money and it doesn't necessarily go to research. Like he, he really, uh, so like the Susan G Komen race for the cure. Yeah. Oh, oh don't even get me. started. He is like an evil Steve Gleason. <laughs> That's if a good point. If y'all want to watch me get mad. Oh, I hate this. Also, if you haven't, <laughs> if you haven't seen Gleason yet, I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's great. It's amazing. It's, it's heart wrenching, but it's great. Yes. Nope. So the, you, mean you almost ran him over when you were running. Oh, don't talk oh, about no. that. <laughs> We're not going to get to that. So yeah, I have it was, so much respect for that guy now. It was really awesome hearing from Alex and him just completely <laughs> shitting on Lance Armstrong. And then, as a man of Greg's heart, he talked about Columbus and the Flat Earth, which we all know that Greg loves to do. I'm, I, I, I have to make my little, my little short version of that, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. Real quick, thank you, Alex, for calling out my shit for not just hammering on Lance Armstrong hard we enough. Need to be, no, seriously, we, we, we need to be... Hold on the fire sometimes. I still will not do that, but you already did. So that you you picked up my slack. Thank you very much, Alex. So the super short version, um, he brought up two very good points. Um, I'll say one very good point, two points. 
Sorry, bro. So the uh, the the two points you brought up was that he said Columbus Day is the result of the Knights of Columbus, and that it was a result of Teddy Roosevelt. Knights of Columbus, absolutely true. Most sources verify this. Um, the Knights of Columbus is a religious organization. It was actually associated with our high school. Fun fact, Ryan. So um, it, that is a true thing. This uh, group, they do charity work, and it's a religious organization, and they're associated with Christopher Columbus. That's the super short version of it. It is associated with the Knights of Columbus, and they uh, lobbied very hard for a Columbus Day to commemorate his journey, whether or not you believe in the uh, myth behind it. But the uh, the trickier aspect of it is that he thought that uh, Teddy, Ro- uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a part of it. I couldn't find a lot of uh, sources verifying that. I'm not saying it's not true, but um, I, I did extensive searching on it, and um, I didn't find a whole lot of sources backing that up. I'm not saying it's not true, but uh, the, the Alex, you brought up that the combination of Knights of Columbus and Teddy Roosevelt contributed to the rise of Columbus Day. Knights of Columbus definitely contributed to it. Teddy Roosevelt, jury's out, but um, based on my at least initial work on it, I'm not sure he's very associated with it, so... Okay, so what Greg is really trying to say is Wednesday, 9.30, behind the Walmart parking lot, <laughs> you're going to take it out <laughs> like two historically damaged individuals. I'm just, I'm trying to be respectful. No, that, no it's, that's, that's a really great dialogue. Um, and, and honestly, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a dick. Like, if you have some sources on that, I'd love to see them. I'd love to read them. Um, I just couldn't find a whole lot on it. Maybe I just didn't do my due diligence. So if you have something on it, please send it our way. Uh, be this is really fascinating stuff, and I had to eat crow in the fact that I went, oh crap, we did this whole subject and we didn't even cover the Knights of Columbus on it. A group whose name is built on that guy. So uh, such a piece of shit. <laughs> well, we we love hearing from you guys. Even if it's just calling us out on our bullshit, no, and we have to take penalty is, shots. Yeah, seriously, it's uh oh god, poor Josh, have to take a shot. Yeah, wow. But the uh no, but th- th- this is the good stuff, and we really enjoy this, and it forces us to really be critical of how we research and how we look at stuff. So please don't hesitate to send stuff out like this. Yeah, I mean, and you know all the ways to contact us. You know, rumorflies at gmail.com We're at rumorfliespodcast.com at rumorflies on Twitter and Instagram, and oh Google Plus. Oh, and Facebook.com slash rumor flies. I think I covered did it. Did you all. say Instagram? Did you say Instagram? I don't think you said Instagram. You did. No, I did say Instagram. I got Ryan, it. You never fing listen to when we talk about this stuff. <laughs> because Every I time never have like, to say I don't it. think he said Google Plus. No, Ryan, he said Google Plus. Okay. I don't think he said Instagram. No, Ryan. Props to Josh. I don't yeah. know how to be a social media. <laughs> Josh did it just uh he just did my job, so I guess I'll just, just me announcing my return. <laughs> you got your mic time, asshole. <laughs> well, I think that about wraps all of this up. We hope you really enjoyed this episode. Uh please write us leave itunes reviews it makes the world go around everything's you know it's built around that unfortunately so we love all the support emails we get from you guys interacting from you so i'm josh i'm ryan i'm me i'm daryl talk to you next time guys bye bye (laughs) hey everyone just a quick update here we normally don't do this uh post-production but we do have some unfortunate news surrounding william powell the guy who was the original author of the anarchist cookbook yeah, so we have been very interested ever since starting this, with this episode in William Powell's life and really digging into him as a rebel to educator type of transition. And we really wanted to get an interview with him, honestly. This is the first one that we wanted to start off with. But unfortunately, as we were trying to contact him, we found out the day of that he had sadly passed away last month. 
And we just wanted to give a little bit of a shout out to the family of William Powell and everybody that worked with him. Obviously, he was a great guy. We would have loved to be able to talk to him firsthand, but this is what we have right now. We just wanted to give a little bit of a recognition to the group that he worked with, the Common Ground Collaborative. You can check them out at the cgcproject.org. And they are a collaborative of global nonprofit network of uh, educators, schools, and social entrepreneurs. So go check that out in honor of William Powell. And our hearts and thoughts go out to his family and everybody that was close with him. And thank you very much. And once again, this is an episode, obviously, you've heard us. We like to stay a little bit lighthearted with everything. We like to be a little bit rowdy, I guess. But in all honesty... This episode was one of those where we broke a little bit of ground at the end, and we still feel the same on it. Yeah, it's really unfortunate to somebody who you know turned his life around to be such a have such a, a big impact and to try to educate others and make those around him a better person that you know he's no longer with us. So you know it's uh, it's unfortunate, but we felt like you know we needed to at least acknowledge you know his life's work and what he did and. You know, and just give our condolences to the to those uh, who you know who loved him. Yeah, but hey, this uh, he may have passed away, but his legacy won't. So That's exactly right. Like I said, go check out the Common Ground Collaborative and go ahead and spread the word of William Powell. That's right. Bye. Bye. This episode's closing song is "Double Edged Standard" by Spoon. That's F P O O N. So uh, sorry if I messed that up.